0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Just Dow It, the podcast for people starting DAOs. I'm Adam Miller, and I'm your host. I'm also the CEO of MyDAO, which provides legal entity solutions for DAOs. We have a really exciting episode today. Three guests. It might be a new record. Maybe we've had three once before. Really exciting. And uh, let's just dive right into intros. So uh, before we get into the Just Dow It News report, where I will summarize recent Dow news and our guests will comment on the stories, I just want to do some quick intros. So let's go around and have each of you uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what makes you an authority on Dow's. So we'll go in the order I see people on my screen. So let's start with Josh.
1: Thanks, Adam. Hi, folks. I'm Josh. I'm co-founder of MediGov and a computer scientist slash mathematician at the University of Oxford. And I do a bunch of research on DAOs. Um, I build data sets on DAOs, including this thing called GovBase. You can look at at govbase.medigov.org. And I uh, help run DAOSTAR, which is the standards body for DAOs. So we work with a lot of DAO companies, DAOs and builders to kind of set technical standards for the ecosystem.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Great to have you here. And Eliza.
2: Yeah. Hey, so I'm a PhD student in political science at Yale, um, and I'm studying online democratic governance. And to do that, I'm working closely with a couple different uh dows and experiments in decentralized governance and you know trying to look at the data and answer questions usually about incentives and participation and so you know whether that makes me an expert i'm not sure but i don't think there's too many phds in poli sci (laughs) focusing on that so i at least think about it a lot i guess
0: that's awesome yeah so cool all right tara how about yourself
3: um yeah hey so i'm tara i'm also a political science phd student uh actually looking into blockchains and governance um i'm my main project is blockchain gov uh which is uh, led by primavera philippi uh centered in paris and and florence i'm also a research fellow currently with metagov and a associated researcher with the weizenbaum institute in berlin um so what Makes me an expert on DAOs. My whole thesis is around this concept of exit to community that you know a lot of DAO people would call progressive decentralization. So maybe not the biggest expert on tools on maintaining uh, DAOs, but definitely spend uh, a large, large portion of my days thinking around like how do we get there? Um, what's the governance? What's the ownership structures? What you know contingencies should we be aware of? Um, and yeah,
0: awesome. All right. And uh, we were getting a little bit of a, maybe someone was tapping on their desk or something. I'm not sure, but we'll, if it continues, I'll, I'll give another heads up and we'll, we'll see what we can do. It's great to have all of you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, as always, the first half of the show will be the Dow at News Report, where I will summarize each of about six uh, news stories about DAOs. And we will dig into what we think is relevant about these stories for DAOs. Do we agree or disagree with the author, etc.? So, diving right in, the first article of the week is from BlockWorks, and the headline is, Without privacy, DAO governance fails. But total privacy is not the answer. DAOs need a combination of transparency and selective private governance to succeed. Uh, I've taken a few uh, uh, quotes from the article that I will read and then I will turn this right over to our guests because I'm sure they have more interesting things to say about this than me. Um, The article talks about how uh, on-chain governance, which they call the cornerstone of decentralized autonomous organizations, I think I would agree, uh, was envisioned as the paragon of democratic decision making in the blockchain industry. Yet the promised utopia of fair and transparent governance has encountered a significant stumbling block, the lack of privacy. The current landscape of on-chain governance resembles a glass house where participants' actions are visible to all. The article goes on to say that the phenomenon of the bandwagon mentality looms large and that social signaling and groupthink exacerbate these biases. So basically, this article, a major uh, component of this article is arguing that we need private voting for DAOs to succeed. Now, I think this is interesting because I think about times I've been in a any group of people. It could be a nonprofit uh, leadership team or a group of volunteers, could be in a for-profit company, and we're about to do a vote. And, and someone might say, well, would it be better if we do silent voting? Or would it be better if Um, You know, we do something so that it's not just all of us raising our hands or going around the room one at a time and saying yay or nay. And uh, it's always an interesting discussion. It doesn't seem to me like there's an easy answer. Uh, But what do you guys think Uh, as far as how this applies to DAOs? uh, Is there an easy answer or what does the data show?
1: Um, I guess I can take this first one because it's literally in the section that I wrote for DAO Science um i don't know if i can share links but hopefully we can share this afterwards uh but so a group of us uh wrote an entire sort of like section of the paper uh, that we'll be talking about today i guess uh, about granular privacy primitives so speaking exactly to what the article was saying uh long story short so these are folks like you know dan Bonet, um tobin south at mit uh, a few others like michael zargum sort of got together early on to talk about like exactly like how exactly do we build because we don't necessarily want like DAOs to go full private right or full dark down mode um there's still a rationale for public kinds of um discussion but we also you know do want to provide uh, some kind of privacy and this is like for various sort of like clear reasons some of them mentioned in the article you mentioned other things like you know strategic benefits like constitution dow having operating at a Significant disadvantage because its treasury was public, right? Mm-hmm. These things have economic consequences, so we wanted to enable sort of like a sort of like a pick and choose a la carte mode, where you can you know have private voting, maybe private treasuries, private membership, private payouts, but you know on a sort of a la carte basis, based on which what the DAO itself thinks should be possible. Uh, there's also kind of if you go further than that, there's like questions around private execution. So like, you know, if I have a bunch of transactions, kind of arbitrary, like in the contract, do you want that to be private? Uh, That's like going even a little bit further than, you know, these like little pieces of data getting privatized. Uh, I think clearly there are arguments for and against. I'll just say that um, in my mind, at least, uh, I think for DAOs to be competitive with traditional organizations, which clearly, you know, have almost an assumption of privacy in a lot of cases you know, they do need to upgrade, uh, you know, benefit from certain privacy primitives. On the other hand, things like, you know, the decentralized nature of DAOs, things like being open uh, in a sense of like open source, those are things which require kind of public nature. And if DAOs, you know, they can't necessarily have their cake and eat it too. So each individual DAO needs to make a choice, a commitment to either staying public or making a sort of rational decisions. Like I'm gonna keep some things private those tools now exist. and They are getting slowly rolled out to different frameworks.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, I guess even six months ago, it might have been near impossible for most DAOs to even make that choice because the technology was still being developed. Anything to add on this story, uh, Eliza or Tara? All right, let's move on think- to the sec. Oh. oh, yeah, go ahead, please.
3: Oh, no, I just wanted to flag one thing, because I mean, for me, Josh, like summarized the gist of it, especially in terms of like mechanisms and tools and primitives when it comes to voting. Um, I just want to emphasize the the other aspect of DAO governance or like online communities. Um, A lot of it is kind of it's interesting, right, because even before DAOs, we had this pseudonymous sort of uh, online community nature and people were already able to make decisions um collectively had various like tools and processes to do so um, but for me one of the things that i think about or that came to mind in looking at this article is also the the sort of idea that to sustain these communities in many cases what you need is some sort of also social fabric to emerge between the members in that community so you know people continue to show up people like hanging out with each other um etc and that might be possible with a pseudonymous user on Discord who still has a whole personality and is a, you know, person in, in that community. But once we obfuscate all of those social interactions that even precede any voting process or treasury on chain, um, these things might become difficult. So I think that's also an interesting sort of um, contention in the, in the private, non-private, how much do we need it? What does it do to downs and their, you know, Uh, ability to function and and exist over the long term.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Thank you. All right, let's turn to the next story of the week. This story is from The Block, and the headline is, Barnbridge Dow settles with SEC for $1.7 million, agrees to stop selling crypto bond products. Uh, so a quote from the article, Ward and Murray, who are the uh, founders or two of the founders of the Dow, used social media to promote the investment potential and returns associated with smart yield. Ward and Murray appeared as guests on multiple YouTube channels related to so-called decentralized finance. Is so-called, I don't know, isn't that what it's called? So-called decentralized finance to promote smart yield as an investment, the SEC said in its order. You know, to me, just one major takeaway here is DAOs need to just consider legal implications of what they do and ideally hire lawyers because any lawyer would have told these founders even before asking for a retainer, don't publish... Don't say anything about investment products on social media, right? Especially if you're not going to register them with the SEC in some way. Um, you know, I think most DAOs know even if it's just a native token, not even an investment product that you need to be really careful about what you say for a good reason. You know, the SEC uh, or the court case of the SEC against Ripple, the judge was very clear in, in, in talking about you know, lots of different things that make something a security or not. And one of the things that helps is if you don't promote it as a way that people can make money by investing. Um, so that that would have been a really, uh, I think, an easy-ish thing for them to do. At the same time, if you're trying to offer investment products, then there may not be a way around uh, having to follow SEC rules and register with the SEC. So maybe that's a, between a rock and a hard place there. Um, the other cool thing I, I find in this article is You know, uh, the the the, uh, Barnbridge Dow is having to hold a vote of the community on whether or not to comply with the SEC order because it is a Dow. And so I think that is really cool. You know, DAOs often say, let's say they're thinking about forming a legal entity, which is the work that I do. They say, well, if we form a legal entity, doesn't that make it easier for the government to come after us and and take our money? And I tell them, look, if your money is held in a smart contract and you have a, a governance process you have to follow to spend that money, even if the FBI tells you that you have to give over the money, the DAO still has to vote to give over the money. And they probably should do it in that case, because who knows what the FBI would do next. But but I think it's really cool that DAOs still remain DAOs, even when they're under regulatory scrutiny. So would any of you like to uh, comment on this story? Um Maybe I can...
3: Or I'm not an expert on this, but through Blockchain Gov, I have the the joy of talking to a bunch of lawyers uh, a lot of time. And um, so so one thing that strikes me here is a little bit the question, like I like the fact that they're voting and that this is clearly then an internal discussion of governance also within the community. And, you know, people perceive agency on the matter uh, the way that I understand it also with the question of legal entities. And that is, you know, a topic uh, I'd love to, to know a little bit more about or be be more deeply involved with is that even if you don't have a legal entity um you know you you can just be classified as a general partnership which means there's unlimited liability to all these members and as long as you are a citizen of some state that is affected in this court case then you know people can come after your private assets So um i would kind of challenge this notion of like it's cool that the dow can vote on it Um, And has a final say, because I do believe that, you know, the law has various avenues, whether we like it or not, to to enforce decisions that are made. Um, But yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. Very interesting. And that is, I mean, one of the easiest things a DAO can do to reduce its risk, at least from my view, is form a legal entity. And, uh, you know, as part of doing that, you know, you do have to file documents with the government. And so you have to have at least one person who's willing to interact with a government. Um, but I find that most DAOs do have someone in that position. I mean, you do have the DAOs of the world that aim to be totally anonymous. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. But I think in most cases, you can reduce certain risks by by filing.
1: Um, other thoughts? Maybe I'll just say one thing. Um, and it's well, is it actually is in DowScience.org. Um It's in. I mean, it's a very long paper, so it covers like a wide variety of issues. But the uh, one of the things that we're kind of interested in is exactly this question of registration, like legal registration. Um, and a group of us, including like actually a complete subset of the authors um, of the Dow Science paper. I've been sort of thinking about this question around regulatory interoperability, which is tied to questions around regulatory equivalence, which have been covered by uh, Prima's name was already uh, mentioned, like the DAO model law, which was put out by Koala a while back. Um, And the question here is how exactly does registration work? Um, You know, you can register for a legal entity, and that makes perfect sense in a lot of cases, but like DAOs are, you know, net native organizations, right? um, they would exist with or without the registration. And the question is how can DAOs effectively speak and kind of comply and report to these, you know, legal jurisdictions in ways that, uh, you know, just, let's just say in efficient ways, right? There are all sorts of ways in which traditional companies have efficient ways, uh, of, you know, through registered agents of communicating with, uh, legal authorities and DAOs because they're, you know, you know, on-chain native, they can benefit from, I think, perhaps more efficient ways. So this is like, the idea is like, we can ship this as a feature to make it cheaper for DAOs to adhere to and comply to legal regulations, if they choose to. Ultimately, it's still a choice of the DAO. But the question is like, there's infrastructure there that can be built, there's technology, and that is very much still an open problem for this ecosystem.
0: Yeah. And I think that is one of the really cool projects coming from DaoStar is uh, the, the whole uh, project around a standard uh, re- kind of reporting framework that m- maybe you don't even have to tell a government. Maybe you just tell the world uh, certain things about your DAO and maybe governments will see that as, as sufficient and perhaps even providing you with some legal protection. So, yeah, really, really cool initiative.
1: But if they're also private, how's it, how does that work? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We'll, we'll,
0: see. we'll see how <laughs> Yeah, for sure. All right. Next story for the week is from Cointelegraph. And the headline is UN Internet Governance Group to Create Trial DAO for Public Sector. The group didn't say what it would do with its DAO, but emphasized its potential to facilitate decision making. Okay. I I think this is really cool because I love... Look, I feel like half the DAOs out there, they exist equally for two reasons. One reason is to achieve their mission, and the other is to experiment with starting a DAO. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, in the long run, You know, like people aren't starting companies just to see what it's like to start a company. I mean, maybe that is something some people do. Um, But um, uh, I think in the long run, people will be more starting DAOs because they're trying to achieve something and we will have figured out how to DAO effectively. Uh, But in the short run, there's a lot of experimentation that's needed. There's so much we need to learn about not only how to DAO, but what are the benefits of DAOing? And so I love that a UN group, uh, which is, you know, maybe one of the most well-known organizations in the world, the United Nations, is even uh, experimenting with DAOs. It also scares me a little bit because there was a tweet from the same people who announced this DAO saying that the IGF and GBA partnership, those are, I guess, parts of the UN or members of the UN that are doing this, is a significant step forward in the global effort to standardize blockchain and cryptocurrency. Now, I can see standardization can be great. We were just talking about developing a standard method for DAOs to report information about themselves. But somehow it sounds scary to me if the United Nations is trying to standardize blockchain and cryptocurrency. That sounds like more in the vein of like like a global uh, central bank digital currency or, or something like that, that could have much uh, more negative effects than positive. Um, but still interesting to see that even the UN has recognized that there's something, something happening here with DAOs that they need to explore. Uh, any thoughts from, from you guys?
2: Yeah, I agree that at the high level, it's definitely pretty interesting to see this more mainstream adoption, I guess. Um, And, you know, they haven't really specified what exactly they'll be voting on or, you know, what this DAO will be used for. But some of the language they use, I thought it was interesting. You know, they really were leaning into this potential promise of, you know, more efficient, transparent decision making. And so I guess, you know, if you can make a large bureaucracy like the one we're talking about, you know, make more efficient decisions, that's that's kind of an interesting, tangible use case. But. Um, You actually kind of nailed exactly one of my reactions, Was is, are we going to see some, you know, parallel to what we've seen with CBDCs where, you know, some some type of um, co-optation, if you will, of, you know, some of the the blockchain promises, but through a centralized vein. So it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. But um, yeah, definitely interested to follow it.
1: I was just looking at this and just like, wait, I, I really was expecting to see, it just smells like something Azeem would be running, Azim from Gitcoin. Mm. It's like, he's been conniving on getting the UN involved for a while. Um, <laughs> but I guess this is like the IGF group. Okay. So it's a little bit different. I'll just mention like a, kind of a funny story. I was talking to some like the UN folks uh, at this like random uh, meeting and, you know, they were actually like really concerned about their own governance. You was know, just like kind of like a stagnant organization, even you know, as perceived by people kind of you know inside running it, right? You know, senior bureaucrats in the UN. And there's this perception, uh both internally and externally, that you know the UN is kind of like a very slow-moving, conservative, doesn't really get that much stuff done. And the question is, how can the UN move fast enough to govern things? There was like questions about governing AI, but like very much similar questions around how to govern, is it, can it possibly govern things like blockchain? Um, I think it would be, need to be a much more dynamic. I think there's a dynamic, it's even in the name, it's, they're they're trying to be more dynamic, it's a dynamic coalition. Uh, I think that's, they need innovation in democratic decision making, in just decision making flat. I think it's actually kind of cool to see that they're, you know, willing to experiment with DAOs.
0: Isn't that one of the thing things that we're doing in the DAO industry is figuring out how to do more democratic governance better in ways that perhaps no one has even really thought about in a f- couple hundred years? I mean, back around the time of the American Revolution, everyone was talking about this idea of democracy and can it work and how do we do it and how do we do it better? But they have such different constraints from what we have today. And so now we have so many fewer constraints and so much more technology and more experience. And there's, I don't know if there's 10 or hundred thousand people working, you know, seriously on DAOs. Uh, maybe that's a little optimistic at, at this point, but I think those are the problems we're trying to solve and they really can be applied even at the international governance level.
3: Maybe just focusing on something that Josh also said, um, with like the way that internet governance works right now, uh, I'm actually not surprised that they mention or highlight this aspect of transparency um, in decision making. And and maybe, or I mean, I don't know what this is about, but like um, the idea of getting more people involved. Um, and one of the things that came to mind for me is uh, is ICANN, kind of like the the big organization governing internet names and numbers right now. And we did a bunch of work around like legitimacy um, and governing the internet and legitimacy, and came across a bunch of work on ICANN, and it was so interesting. The legitimacy beliefs, as Josh said, they they did empirical work, so they asked people, and even from within ICANN, uh, a lot of people said, no, this is this is you know questionable in terms of like is this a legitimate way to be governing such a broad um, thing? And then the other thing is like so. I mean, right at the corner were maybe still high ones and then they, uh, they, they went down very rapidly. And then the vast majority of people who are actually affected by what ICANN does, which is all of us using the internet every day, um, didn't have any legitimacy beliefs because nobody knows what ICANN is or what it does, right? And um, so I think this, I don't know if it refers to this, but um, the idea of increasing transparency of how the internet is even governed and that it is a governable space for the people who are using it to an extent, um, you know, I think is, is such an important factor going forward. And uh, would love to see them experimenting with DAOs to do that.
0: For anyone who doesn't know, ICANN is effectively the organization that governs the internet, right? On In the World Wide Web? But it's controlled by probably a board of 25 people or companies? Something like that.
3: Yeah, I think there is nation state involvement. There have been a lot of attempts mm. at decentralizing ICANN a little bit as well, like taking it out of the U.S. focus, et cetera. They, you know, I think they're very well meaning in what they do. But still, as you say, uh, it's an organization with incredible power that a lot of people are just not aware of. And that is having maybe a hard time governing um, this domain transparently or encouraging participation, which would be cool.
0: Yeah, for sure. All right, the next story of the week. This one is from Coindesk, and the headline is, ENS token jumps 50% as Vitalik Buterin hails it as super important. The token touched the highest level since April and volume increased more than 600%. All right. Well, this one is fun for me, partly because it is a great story and partly because I'm also a person who uh, has aped into ENS tokens in the past and, and even recently. Um, the ENS token uh, is the token, uh, the governance token for the Ethereum name service uh, project, which is where you get your .eth uh, domains and, to my knowledge, it's the only major, at least by far, the biggest kind of namespace project in blockchain. Although, if you guys are aware of others, we would, love to, would love would love to hear that too. Um, and so, I own you know Adam and my my usual nickname, the Thriller and and stuff like that. And um, Uh, I I think most of us would have already known that it was super important, uh, but it's always nice when uh, Vitalik weighs in on things. Uh, He he writes some great papers and obviously has some really important perspectives on everything as the founder of Ethereum. Um, So if anyone's not aware of this, uh, a project, check it out. And, and like most, I think it's fair to say most crypto projects, it's governed by a DAO. That, you know, that's effectively what it means to have a governance token is that you're doing some kind of on-chain governance where you know who gets to vote and how many votes they get by how many uh, tokens they hold. Uh, any thoughts on this?
1: I guess uh and S. we do a lot of work with them.
0: Mm, cool. Interesting. Can you say more about what type of work you do with a, a major DAO like that?
1: Oh, uh, sure. So like one of the things we're doing is um, uh, so uh, so this isn't me specifically. So but this is Eugene, who's currently the executive director of Medico. Uh He runs uh, something called Grants Innovation Lab, which I don't know if you saw there was like a large, like 80 page plus report on Grants programs Uh that just got released, like uh, you know, a few months, maybe last month. And uh, since then, slash before, uh, we've been started doing some work with ENS to kind of advise their grant program. Separately, um, I think we got a small grant from them to, uh, long story short, have a way for a DAO to publish. Uh, basically, you know, we were talking about like sort of reporting data to uh, report data through their ENS. It's basically kind of equivalent to, if you're familiar with DNS, there's this thing called, um, you know, you can use like TXT extensions to kind of publish information it's used for like verification, things like that. We're kind of doing the same thing with ENS. Um, And it's gonna be, there's gonna be an integration between ENS and uh, like the public, you know, data being published through DaoStore standards. So that's like, that would be one thing that we do together. Besides the fact that uh, Nick Johnson is like an advisor too. Um, to DevStore and who's that? Oh, sorry. Uh, Nick is, a. Uh, I I think it was the founder. He is the founder. Yeah. Founder of ENS. Mm-hmm. Cool.
0: Awesome. Any other thoughts on ENS? I mean, I'm right to say it's affected it by far the largest kind of name space project in blockchain, right?
1: But how large is it compared to DNS?
0: Ah, good question. <laughs> what is the market that we're competing for? Is it blockchain namespace or is it namespace? Right? Yeah, and it's very small, right, <laughs> compared to DNS. Yeah, yeah, compared to DNS, it's tiny. <laughs> um... Yeah, and for any listener who doesn't know, DNS stands for Domain Name Service. That's like the backbone of na- you know—how to refer to things on the internet. Good way to say it. Good enough. Cool. <laughs> All right, so for the last news story of the week, we're gonna do a tweet. And this is actually a tweet from Yale or someone at Yale. And it's about the research paper uh, fr- uh, written by the group that these three guests uh, belong to. Um, and so I'm gonna read the tweet and then I will just turn it over to the group to explain uh, what this research is really about and what the outcomes were. And then after that, we will officially transition into the interview segment of the podcast, but uh, no problem that this will feel like the start of it. So the tweet is from ISPS Yale. Uh, A new study from Eliza Oak. Hi, Eliza. And Ahal underscore research explores what happened when a blockchain company gave $28 million in digital currency to 300,000 users to reward past governance participation and what it might mean for offline civic engagement. And I'll just make one connection for the audience, too, before I turn it over to you, Eliza, to explain what's going on here, which is that just yesterday or the day before, uh, Optimism just gave away a hundred million dollars worth of Optimism tokens to reward uh, past uh, contributions to Optimism and maybe blockchain in general. And I mean, I I just can't imagine anything like that has ever happened before, uh, where you have people giving away tens of millions of dollars and soon hundreds of millions of dollars as part of kind of retroactive public goods funding or um, anything like it. So uh, really exciting to see this happening. And I know a lot of people personally in crypto who, you know, they do amazing work for the crypto ecosystem, for the blockchain ecosystem and have trouble funding the work that they do. And now suddenly they're getting a $50,000 or $200,000 grant uh, after the fact. So it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, So Eliza, tell us more what's going on here. And what does it mean?
2: Yeah. So um, that link you mentioned, that was a nice little write up from my home institution on some research I conducted um, together with Andy Hall, who's also a political scientist and professor at Uh, the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. And so kind of the motivation for the, the bigger question, motivation for this research is, you know, this question that I think most projects face in, you know, trying to decentralize governance, which is how do we broaden participation to include more community members? you know there's security reasons why a project wants this as well as you know maybe just more the you know ideological democratic ethos of you know higher representation and inclusion and so one idea that's been thrown around is to directly compensate um individuals through token rewards right and so um we kind of leveraged this clever design of optimism's airdrop two um to empirically study Uh, whether this works and you know the punchline is that you know we find that first of all there's these overall effects on um, subsequent governance participation you know just revealing airdrop 2's reward scheme that it was connected to governance caused a large increase in token delegation including first-time delegations But then we also found that um, for the people who were directly rewarded um, for past participation, this reward increased the subsequent subsequent rates at which they participated in delegation as well as voting. And, you know, we think there's definitely some unique things to this case of optimism. As you mentioned, there's this broader culture of encouraging public goods and pro-social behavior and, um, you know, kind of this commitment to cutting edge decentralized governance. Um, you know, there's also things to think about, you know, if, if projects thinking about designing their own airdrops, maybe it makes sense to, you know, have this kind of quasi random retroactive reward criteria, which makes it harder to game and just harvest rewards. Um, and then, you know, focusing on past governance behavior um, and promising this future sequence of rewards. So this wasn't just a one-off instance. And so, yeah, this this paper, um, it's kind of an academic style paper, just, you know, diving into both the the data and then some broader lessons for participation.
0: Hmm. One thing I'm curious about, I I studied economics as an undergrad, and I remember reading papers about uh, when nonprofits reward volunteering. And there was this really interesting finding at the time that if you reward people too much, you're kind of telling their brain that they did the volunteering for the money. And so the person actually is less encouraged to continue volunteering in the future for kind of endogenous reasons. Versus if you reward them a little bit, like a free jacket or a free meal at an event, then that encourages more people to participate and they're happier about it. And they continue to participate even more uh, because they're still really not doing it for the money, right? You're not, doing, you're not showing up for a day because you got a cool jacket. is um, there an element of that in this? I mean, what's the right amount to reward people? And is there such thing as too much?
2: Yeah, I think that's a super interesting question and one I've kind of thought about specifically related to, you know, how much should you change the um, eligibility criteria for the reward moving forward because, you know, for some of the reasons you mentioned and also just, you know, making it harder to game, right? Um, you know, try to discourage just mindless delegating, if people know that's always the thing that's rewarded. Um, And there's also this question of, you know, how cost effective and sustainable is this long term to set up this expectation down the road? And so, you know, I think these are pretty open questions um, that you touched on and, you know, kind of project dependent.
0: So that's a really good point, though. So I want to try to touch on that in a little more detail uh, in terms of uh, so there's a lot of gaming that happens in crypto when people know how th- what they're gonna be rewarded for. I mean, this happens in life in general, right? You have to be really careful with mm-hmm. incentives because people will find ways to game them. And I think especially on the blockchain, that's really easy to do. Cause if you tell people we're gonna reward you for voting, people will just go mindlessly vote as much as possible. And that may not be what you're really going for, even though you are trying to encourage more voting. So I think what you're suggesting is actually, that's a benefit of retroactively rewarding people is that they don't know what they're going to be rewarded for, except that there is some group Involved, or maybe it's the whole community that's going to decide later what behaviors have actually been productive recently, and let's reward those. And so now, really, you're just telling people find ways to be productive, right? And then you might get rewarded for that. Um, I think that's that's really clever. Is that is that a, a fair assessment of, of what you said?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely an important part of what's going on. You know, this um, the fact that. People who received the airdrop reward didn't know what would be rewarded or how much. But there was kind of this broader culture and, you know, hinting at there will be future subsequent airdrops. You know, we have this prioritization on pro-social behavior. So exactly. And then, you know, there are interesting questions, too, on this point um, that I'll just flag really quick about, you know, thinking about how to design airdrops in the first place. You know, how how might we think about further decentralizing this process? Because in most cases, you know, it's a handful of, you know, some core team deciding what it, what exactly goes into, you know, the reward eligibility. But you could imagine, you know, some bad actors trying to reward voting in a particular direction perhaps, or, you know, mm. something that feels um, maybe a little too strategic or centralized. And so that's another another open question that I've been kind of noodling on after this analysis.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, that that touches on just I feel like it's such a major issue for DAOs in general, which is how do you actually decentralize and distribute power more widely without losing whatever it is that the group of people who started out with the power we're trying to achieve. Right. And assuming that's what everyone came to the project for in the first place, I think everyone has an interest in generally maintaining that vision or that purpose or that ince- like some of those incentives. And, and yet when you then say, well, everyone gets to decide, how do you, how do you know they're going to stay on track? All right, that does it for the Just Dow It news report for this week. Uh, I will do a quick segue and then we'll turn to the featured guest interview where we will dig a bit more into the background of our three guests and especially into what they are working on in Web3. For the segue, I just do a quick advertisement for MyDow, uh, my company, uh, the sponsor of the show. Uh, MyDAO provides legal entity solutions for DAOs. And we also have a partner network of global uh, crypto lawyers, about 100 lawyers and tax advisors, and we will introduce you to them for free. So if anyone's looking for uh, legal advice, tax advice, they'll usually do a free session for you. At the the same time, if you're a lawyer or a tax advisor, please reach out uh, about getting added to that network. And uh, together, uh, we can help ensure DAOs are taking care of their legal issues. All right. Turning to the featured guest interview. So uh, just uh, uh, briefly, I'd love to ask the three of you, or you can choose how brief you want to be, but how did you get into Web3 and DAOs in the first place? And then we'll turn to uh, what you're
1: working on now.
0: And uh, let's we'll go the same order. So Josh, you want to go first?
1: Uh s- how I got into Web3 or just DApps.
0: And DAOs? And DAOs. And so DAOs. So the, yeah, and, and DAOs.
1: DAOs. Okay. Yep. Um, i guessing it was probably uh, Prima. So Tara's supervisor who, what, what's the word? Green-pilled, red-pilled um, <laughs> me into this space. Uh, before then, uh, essentially I got into governance uh, because I randomly co-thought co taught this course with this law professor, and that was really on video game governance, like governance in video games, which was truly a hilarious course to teach at a law school. Mm. Um, and then kind of from there, uh, we just ended up, you know, we started this thing called Metagov, and it was kind of focused on governance and the people who really cared about governance, though, were not necessarily the people in video games, even though it's very interesting, the people who cared about governance were really people in web three and oftentimes within dallas for very very sort of clear uh and good reasons right if you have a billion dollars or your livelihood you know invested into a digital construct actually like it suddenly matters a lot how governance works whereas if you have like a million gold tokens um you know on your wow server that still kind of matters and people still do it actually it's you know it's still relevant Uh, but people don't make the same kinds of decisions and they don't do the same kinds of Mm. things since was very interesting to observe that.
0: Oh, wow. That's cool. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm thinking about like, I've been playing a little bit of Diablo immortal recently and there's all kinds of uh, in-game goods and there's a marketplace, isn't that a terrible one? That's what some people say, but I love it. It depends on how much. Oh no, Adam! Oh no! I don't know if I can
1: continue this podcast.
0: (laughs) Depends on how much you like grinding to earn more uh, in-game goods and stuff like that. (laughs) That's why I'm going to love blockchain gaming. I think more than maybe a lot of gamers. All right, uh, let's let's turn to Eliza. How about you? How did you get into Web3 and DAOs in the first place?
2: Yeah, so how I got into this, I guess. So I came to grad school by way of working at MIT for a couple years as a researcher, kind of studying broad questions about politics and technology. So this was stuff like analyzing YouTube data to understand the spread of hate speech online. Um, but kind of with this background and interest in tech and politics, I came, started my PhD, and was thinking a lot about. Um, political economy of development in Africa and cross-border payments. And from there, I started hearing about cryptocurrencies being used in interesting ways. And so it was, you know, really from there, learning about this use case just of payments that I realized, oh, um, you know, there's really core governance questions about the actual, you know, um, governance and coordination across these platforms themselves beyond just payments. And so from there, I kind of just, you know, went down the decentralized governance rabbit hole, if you will, and got pretty excited about the data opportunities to empirically study some of these theories um, and got, you know, connected with really interesting people in this space. And here we are.
0: So is part of what makes this exciting from an academic perspective that because DAOs are so transparent, usually all the data is like sitting there for you to collect if you're willing to go do the work.
2: Yeah, absolutely. For me, as someone who does a lot of kind of quantitative empirical social science, I honestly think there's some parallels to you know, think of like the study of social networks where you know there's just kind of this explosion in the ability to test different theories at scale and at a granularity, not possible. We see that in econ too, you know, now people study different incentives and auctions and online marketplaces in ways that could only kind of be theorized before. So absolutely, I think, you know, kind of this idea of DAOs as laboratories for studying democracy is super interesting.
0: Wow, yeah. So in some ways, the flip side to, you know, people are often so concerned about their own privacy, which I can understand, especially in some circumstances, (laughs) but there's also these uh uh i guess um external positive externalities of not having privacy in, in all the time that uh are the way we live our lives is suddenly available for study and research and you know for people like the three of you to help figure out how we can all live better that's really cool yeah yeah that's true all right tara how about yourself how'd you get into web3 and daos in the first place
3: um so for me it was kind of related to what Eliza just hinted to it was it was actually like a I don't know a longish sort of process but um I did my undergrad looking like doing economics predominantly because I was I don't know I was like oh I'm going to change the economy um you know went to college was like that this is not going to do it um got interested in a bunch of like heterodox economic theory um, but then also fed off because I was like, these are great ideas. But as Eliza just said, and this maybe in the economic context, they were just like theories or concepts or, um, I don't know, Soviet Union experiments that had not turned out so well. And and yeah, kind of a little frustration there. got into uh, or introduced to Bitcoin then towards the end of my undergrad and kind of thought, you know, crypto communities were this really interesting space of um, of experimenting and in a lab like sort of setting with voluntary communities rather than you know coercing anybody to participate in this economic experience but yeah just to to test out what um, certain things could be um, and that kind of got me interested in the whole blockchain thing and went down the rabbit hole uh, hung around lurking uh, for a couple of years and got into a bunch of online arguments with people so this was you know not so long after like the bitcoin scaling debate and stuff like that and people were like no bitcoin cannot change um and i think that's really what triggered my governance sort of interest because i was like no i'm sure it can um or like uh, if it really can like like prove it um and yeah so a couple of years after that sort of experience i went to do a master's and that was all around like governance of bitcoin um and how even if maybe we don't see it changing as drastically you know there is active governance there are things being added there is a process um, and 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 yeah then like the the kind of segue into daos i guess came naturally um, as soon as they started popping up more was obviously so excited following all the drama of the dao hack and and those things um, and yeah what kind of keeps me here is a little bit also the the people that I've met through the experience of studying blockchains and governance and especially DAOs, which I think, you know, it's fascinating that it brings together such an interdisciplinary uh, sort of group of people, but who are so genuinely open to learning together and sharing um, that kind of journey. I have never had that anywhere else. And yeah, so still here.
0: (laughs) Very cool. All right. I have a follow up question for you which is a question that I have debated with many folks. It may be purely philosophical or epistemological. I'm not sure, but is Bitcoin a DAO?
3: Um, I don't think so, but I've heard this argument as well. Um, I don't think it is because, so for me, I stick to, I think there's a question, what is a DAO, right? Um, but I would still stick to a little bit of a stricter definition that includes the use of smart contracts, right, and on-chain sort of governance. And even though maybe miners can signal in certain ways, etc., um, that that to me is is maybe not enough. It's definitely an online community that is governing itself in on-chain and off-chain ways. But um, but yeah, uh, to me, not quite fitting into the DAO definition that I hold but yeah I would, anybody come to me please yeah
1: I will literally <laughs> just quote from the paper DAOs also belong to a larger class of digitally constituted organizations organizations governed through computational artifacts such as software hardware or protocols for example the Bitcoin Ethereum and Tor networks even though they are not DAOs can be classified as digitally constituted organizations
0: hmm and that's from your the paper that the three of you uh, co-wrote.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Cool, which we'll get into more in a second. I want to share my, my part of my view too, which is I think one of the, to me one of the key elements of DAOs is that DAOs are organizations, and I'm sure there are folks who could debate what an organization is too. But but to me, it's like a thing where people are do like explicitly coming together to achieve a, a common goal, and I feel like Bitcoin is just not an organization right it's a protocol it's it's a it's a it's a money it's a it's a currency it's an asset it's uh, software it's all these things but i don't think it's an organization that that doesn't feel fair like an organization is usually i guess like a smaller subset of people doing something in a larger group and bitcoin is like the larger group so to me it, it, it just doesn't feel it feels more like what, what you just said josh um Okay, let, let, let's turn to this, this paper. So I know one of the reasons you were all excited to come on the show was I think you recently uh, published this landmark paper. So tell us about the paper. Uh, wh- wh- what is this paper? Wh- what's going on here?
1: Well, I guess I can start. Um, so yeah, uh, the paper is called open problems in Dallas. And it's exactly what it sounds like. We brought together, I think 20 plus leading uh, researchers on DAOs across both academia and industry, uh, as well as you know uh, lawyers operating in the space in order to identify, hey, this is the frontier. If you're a builder or a researcher who is not already familiar with DAOs and you wanna work on something that's actually gonna be impactful, these are the problems you should work on. So we talked about or privacy primitives, There are mechanism designs, there are sort of model laws, um, there are uh, a variety of different sort of questions that if solved could actually make DAOs better and oftentimes significantly better, right? Uh, There are also questions that are really kind of posed in light, in a kind of an academic light. Uh, So these are questions that were DAOs, um, as Eliza and Tara were mentioning earlier, because of their, you know, Digital nature, because of the data, allows researchers to kind of tap into new opportunities and resolve long-standing, uh, outstanding questions in those fields. So it's kind of like doing double duty in that in those cases. Uh, it's. I'll just mention that it was uh, published alongside a companion website, DaoScience.org, which basically is an interactive version of that paper. So if you don't Enjoy reading you know 80 page you know uh, PDFs. Here's a smaller version. It's more chunk size, uh, and you can sort of click through it and there's other resources on top of the pro- the open problems themselves there.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. well, we have a lot we can dig into, but w- would either of you like to add uh, anything else about uh, the- introducing what this paper is to you?
3: I can maybe add one thing that I find so incredibly important. So beyond, you know, saying this is the frontier, this is what can be impactful to work on, both in terms of like rendering new academic knowledge, but also, you know, furthering the the concept and practice of DAOs. I think what for me also stood out about this project and that I'm excited about is the number of people that came together to work on it and showcasing also the interdisciplinarity of the phenomenon um, and kind of, you know holding up this flag that says no this is not just silly kids on a discord server and you know this it's it's like a serious thing like we can have the fun silly side and i'm so for it um but let's also be you know be serious a little bit and grown up and be like hey this can really impact various fields of knowledge this can change things where we see problems you know if we do it in a thoughtful and mindful Sort of um sort of way and and just having that group of people, many of whom you know have like long standing academic i don't know pedigree in the various fields, and those people coming just to, together and saying like, yeah we would like to contribute to this paper. We're interested in that, I think um is really important for me to point out, and especially also in a time like I saw I guess like in November or something some tweets um that were like, Oh DAOs are dead or like. You know this is the ultimate bear market i'm leaving whatever and i'm like no there's something interesting here um beyond the market even uh and we should look at it and we should care about it and you know others do too
2: yeah i love that um i think you know you guys both summarize it super well and i would just you know highlight again how exciting it is to me how interdisciplinary this is just because i think sometimes academic disciplines are a little too siloed and don't communicate enough, but this topic especially just shows how um, productive it is um, and how well-suited this topic of DAOs is to combine political scientists and computer scientists and economists and lawyers and others to tackle these super interesting broader questions that touch on everything that we're thinking about
0: it is so cool and I, I love the the cover page for the paper lists about looks like 20 authors from 20 organizations but, but many are members of more than one of the organizations is that about right maybe 30. yeah
3: and I, I will say it was a coordination <laughs> um i'd say a successful coordination challenge um for us
1: but yeah yeah no, <laughs> yeah. I also want to give credit to uh so well, Tara was actually extremely instrumental in organizing a bunch of these workshops um so that we conducted at like DevCon, DevConnect. I think we had one at ETH Denver and some online ones as well, uh, where we um brought together not only the researchers, but also just like DAO practitioners. You know, talking to folks who are building DAOs, running DAOs, or building tooling for DAOs, I'm really trying to ask them, like, you know, what do you think is a problem, right? You know, don't just take our word like some bunch of academics. Um, you know, what's actually like? What do you think needs to happen uh, for DAOs to be a thing or to be more successful? And while there, we've tried to acknowledge some of those folks uh, in the acknowledgments. I just want to sort of like make it clear that it really is has been kind of an ecosystem effort, and we're so so grateful for the participation of everybody that you know came into those workshops
0: yeah that's so cool that's so cool um i want to touch on something uh, tara brought up which is uh, how you know over the past year, especially in the bear market, you see some people tweeting DAOs are dead, or this is like the one of the founders of a maker, oh, no, maybe not maker. One of the major DAOs uh, that that went effectively out of business or had to restructure wrote a paper or an article called like this is why DAOs don't work, you know, something like that. And and I think you just like look at companies or other organizations, right? What percentage of organizations fail, like? I don't know, 80%, 90%. I guess that's the famous often quoted stat, whether or not it's exactly right. But just because 80 or 90% of organizations fail doesn't mean organizations are a bad idea. It just means yours unfortunately failed. And there could be endogenous, exogenous reasons for that, not necessarily your fault. Um, But I think a much productive way of funneling that type of energy is to say, how can I or how can we do better next time? Not, you know, DAOs are dead. Just seems frankly kind of ridiculous. Um, not to mention just that there's so many DAOs being started all the time, every day, uh, you know, on every topic you can imagine. And people in the space generally are more excited about DAOs than ever, um, from, from my view. Do you all agree with that?
1: I have this practical joke I would really like to meme into existence. So one of our <laughs> co-authors, uh, his name's Reuben Ruben Youngbloom. Re- Youngbloom. Oh, okay. I'm... Already screwing it up, but uh, he's um, he's a researcher at uh, I think Stanford and MIT, and he's been working on this project called Dow Death. And the idea is that you know Dow Death could be better. It could be more graceful. It could be more you know dignified, uh, or at the very least, it could be cheaper than like corporate death, which is oh my gosh, it takes a lot of effort to wind down a company, and do that right and do that without paying giant tax bills is actually kind of atrocious and really hard. I feel like you know maybe there are ways we could both understand how daos die slash default because a lot of them look like open source repos rather than organizations but also how can we do that more efficiently um if you ever do mention this please refer to ruben in the future as the dao reaper because i think that would be (laughs) truly hilarious
3: can i say like we actually um or like in in a other thing that i was involved with together with other internet like um we ran a dow death salon where we had a whole thing i was not actually aware that ruben was also working on this uh right now but a whole workshop and ritual around uh dows dying during shelling point um in berlin last september i think it was um and with exactly that focus so one of the interesting thing is like noting causes of death we came up with a list there Interesting also we have the data of like how the DAOs are dying, right? Is it, is it people on Discord, you know, messages dropping, is it websites being shut down, is it tokens not moving anymore, is it, you know, votes not being cast on Snapshot, etc. Stuff like that, very interesting, which obviously comes after a cause, which could be anything from a rug to, you know, just not fun anymore to whatever. Um, And then this kind of idea that the DAO is an organization that's interesting as compared to traditional organizations, maybe in a way, because it is like tethered to the blockchain, right? There is like this organizational skeleton that just remains there Mm. um, as long as the blockchain continues. So we started doing this, maybe a little bit esoteric, but belonging to this idea of like, let's make DAO death more fun, a ritual of purging and manifesting and we had a fire lit and like a little spell cast um it was amazing actually of like releasing the souls of these dead DAOs, um you know back into the ether even though their their technological skeleton remains blockchain bound type of thing um but yeah i think it's an interesting phenomenon i think we have so many resources when we look into traditional startup world like the the there's a startup graveyard i don't know if you know that lists projects and causes a failure um there has been an attempt uh, by nathan schneider and some other people as well i think it was incorporated in like gnosis zodiac or so of starting to list these projects and there's so much that we can learn from them as well to not just focus on these success stories of like you know uh, i'm obsessed with ens and all of these cases and i love us studying more But let's also look at what we've done over this Dow boom cycle before we get into the next one, maybe, and take it one step further um, in a fun way, ideally. So, yeah, pro-fire and purging.
0: (laughs) Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Sometimes the money even gets stuck on chain, right? I mean, I I guess I was, in a way, part of a a little experiment. I'm almost embarrassed to say what it was called, but there was the fart token. It's a Farcaster thing. And it was basically just a big joke, but in like two hours, there was 10 ETH, you know, in the smart contract before people realized there was a bug in the smart contract and we'd never get the money out, (laughs) and like no matter what we tried. And so, uh, project was relaunched later, but those 10 ETH are stuck there forever. And I don't think that ever happened with traditional organizations. And so it is interesting how those skeletons can survive forever. Um, let's dig into the paper a little bit. So maybe each of you uh, could pick uh, in any order uh, your favorite open DAO problem or open problem in DAOs uh, or otherwise maybe your favorite takeaway from the paper and let's discuss uh, each of those. So uh, would any of you like to go first?
1: Okay, I guess I can get started then. So I'm not going to pick one from computer science just because, I mean, so I helped edit that section. We were all kind of editors of different sections, Eliza Tara, myself, uh, and also uh, Sarah Hubbard who couldn't make it today. But I thought there was a parts of the economic section were like very, very interesting to me. Um, so that was uh, a lot of people contributed to that, but I think, um, A substantial section was contributed by Jason Potts and Chris Berg from RMIT. So they're economists at RMIT. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, just like pointing out in just like very clear terms, like, okay, you know, firms have transaction costs. This is a very traditional economic theory. And if DAOs want to be competitive with firms, they need to reduce their transaction costs. And there's like different breakdowns possible. And a lot of sort of like stuff that goes into the details of how to measure that, how to reduce it, where it might be possible. But like posing that as effectively the grand challenge from kind of like a, how do I say Like for an institutional account of DAOs, it's really sort of adding up all the different costs that starting a DAO imposes. And this this goes beyond just like the, you know, like gas costs, right? Um, Can do is like transaction costs, trust costs, the cost of using Discord versus something else. Maybe there's a cost and sort of like productivity. I mean, it's hard to sort of add all these things up, right? But adding all that up is kind of the grand challenge from an economics perspective. And I thought that was like actually very helpful for me to get like a very clear sense of like, this is exactly how like a well-trained economist uh, define this problem and think about it.
0: Okay, interesting. So um, I'll give a little more background for the audience too, which is I think the classic theory of the firm that you're talking about is the whole reason firms are... I think you could say companies or organizations uh, exist is because if everyone just worked on their own and then you had to have like 20,000 people collaborating as independent contractors with each other, the the transaction cost of just collaborating, right? How do you coordinate that many people working independently with no one in charge and no structure, et cetera? Uh, Or I shouldn't say no structure, but no firm, no organizational structure. It's, It's just impossible compared to, Twenty thousand people working as one company, where it's a given that you're supposed to do whatever you can to help all the other people. You don't have to come up with a new contract every time you want to ask, like the legal department for an opinion or the accounting department to do your books. You know that's why firms exist. And so it sounds like uh, you're kind of building on that, Josh, and saying if if DAOs are going to be as successful as classical firms or more, they have to go even further on that spectrum of reducing that overall the overall transaction costs of of collaborating. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. And and I think, I mean, is that so if so it's interesting, that's actually then maybe one of the key arguments for why DAOs matter in the first place and why they are valuable. I mean you look at like Constitution DAO, right? One of the earlier DAOs, um, where they raised like 42 or 43 million dollars in like a week and then try to spend it together, like you just, you could not have done that with the traditional firm structure, right? Just you would have had all kinds of legal uh, costs around drafting documents and filing with different regulators and all this stuff just to make it possible to raise 40 plus million dollars for a common purpose. There's just no other way to do it until DAOs. And now suddenly you could do it and maybe you should have had a lawyer if, you know, if we were doing it today, but at the time, You know, they successfully raised 40 plus million dollars in a week and then tried to spend it together to buy something in an auction. And so like the transaction costs have been reduced meaningfully in a lot of ways. And yet it sounds like this still remains at the same time a major open question, which is how do we do that further? Yeah. Very cool. And by the way, uh, if folks are wondering, the paper is organized into, I think, six sections, uh, as what Josh was referring to. There's computer science, economics, ethics, law, organizational science, and political science and philosophy. And I think in each of these sections is uh, a number of open DAO problems. Is that right? Cool. Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. All right, well, Tara or Eliza, would either of you like to go next with your favorite open DAO problem or takeaway from the paper?
3: Um, I'm happy to go on. I did help edit the section, but it is not my own field. I will say actually, uh, I'm very excited about the computer science section. I understand nothing, but there's a lot to be worked <laughs> on and it sounds amazing. So um, check that out. Um, apart from that, like the the law section was really something that i think also touches on a number of things that we've just been discussing um that i find so interesting and there's so many fundamental problems in in my understanding to be worked on um so for example i mean now if we say is bitcoin an organization yes or no it's a philosophical sort of debate or argument, but um, where it becomes very real is when lawyers start classifying and saying, this is an LLM, or this is a general partnership, or this is a, you know, what have you, that falls under XYZ regulation. So then you have to know, and kind of developing this understanding, maybe from a foundational philosophical sort of level, like what is even the Dao and, you know, what are the different types and, but connecting that back to how does external regulation view that thing? That we've created, um, I think that is so interesting and moving towards what um, Josh mentioned at the beginning. You know, understandings of what DAOs might be, not by incorporating them legally in a specific jurisdiction necessarily, because then the DAO, if if I incorporate as a Cayman trust, right, then it's it's a DAO, but it's also really a Cayman trust, and it's kind of like contradicting itself, maybe to an extent, like this online organization with a physical presence. Um, But what if DAOs, and this was like, you know, the proposition by the Kuala DAO model law, what if DAOs, like, technically have to fulfill certain requirements that the the regulator can look at on-chain or, you know, in other accompanying documentation and can say, okay, XYZ checks are being met, therefore this DAO falls under this classification in our jurisdiction. This, however, would not require, you know, DAOs to do that awkward thing where they also have um, a legal entity set up in a specific space. And why I found that question so, so interesting, and this is, you know, um, me thinking about my own interests, is, is really this idea that I work on, like, exit to community which comes out of this idea of like, why are big internet platforms and, and sharing economy platforms like, like Twitter or Airbnb and Uber, you know, why, why aren't they run by the people who use them and contribute to them and like drive the car or, you know, create the content, et cetera? Why don't we have a say in those platforms um, and also maybe a revenue share? And I mean, including employees, et cetera. And the governance would be a different thing. But um, so this is a really interesting question and in how to get there. But one of the things that you realize pretty fast is that, all right, imagine uh, Twitter as a, Cooperative where all users sort of have a share and a say, et cetera. Would we want that co op to be incorporated? I'm in Berlin right now. Do you want it to be a German cooperative? Should it be a US based cooperative? Should it be, you know, where should that be? Is that not a weird thing? And would that not, you know, for example, from a European perspective, they would still worry about data privacy um, things in dealing with this US entity. Would it be able to have those uh, cooperative shares distributed this widely? Etc. So you run into a bunch of problems and you realize "Oh, DAOs, you know, is there a way to structure such governance and ownership, um, sort of rights across international communities um, in a purely online way in a, um, in a protocol that is able to represent, you know, digital value. Um, so I think that would be so cool. And then, and jurisdictions coming in from the outside to, you know, recognize and regulate in their own way. Um, but to do that, there are so many foundational and a lot of them are listed in our paper you know just questions that lawyers uh we really need lawyers internationally to think about deeply uh and what that means and what sort of tools they have at their uh disposal so i'm really excited about that and also with the overlap maybe with a lot of what's uh being described in the computer science uh section because i guess to have these new regulatory equivalent measures, like we fulfill technical requirements rather than legal ones, necessarily, or they are the same, then we also need to advance in privacy in, you know, um, certain other areas, uh, technologically, and just at the core mechanism level. So yeah, those are the two that I'm very excited about. Um, and curious to see what people come up with.
0: Wow. So interesting.
2: Yeah, and then as for me, I think one of the sections that I'm especially pumped about is the subsection in computer science, which we call DAOs as social computing systems. Um, And just to recap, um, social computing, I guess, is a subfield of computer science, but it focuses on the interplay between people, society, and technology. Um, So, pretty interesting to me as someone who thinks a lot about kind of the social science perspective of this but um you know some of the the questions this section proposes for future study is like super interesting things like you know how might technically similar smart contracts ground different communities in very different ways and this is getting at how the social structure so like different power structures and roles and norms about technology you know, in a community might shape the way that certain, you know, hard-coded technologies understood or used. And um, there's there's a lot of other interesting aspects to this, but um, I just think it kind of represents how interesting and interdisciplinary DAOs are and what we tried to get at in this paper.
0: Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I feel like it's you can say on any number of these disciplines, you can say like DAOs are inherently a legal thing for example, right? Because organizations, I think from a legal perspective, are inherently a legal thing, right? But then you can also say DAOs are inherently a social thing, because they're all about organizing people in a new way or people and resources. And so they're inherently a social thing. And of course, they're inherently a computer science thing, because they're all based on, you know, running on code. So it's, it's amazing that and not just interdisciplinary, but like at their core, like like leveraging the complete fields of each of these disciplines, right? Like just so meaningful to each of these disciplines it's just incredible. So let's turn to a little bit of uh, predicting the future. So I'm curious, uh, where are DAOs going? You know, I mean, I feel like you guys must have seen so much of where DAOs are at today in terms of what's working, what's not working, how many DAOs there are, what DAOs are doing. Uh what can people expect to see in the coming year or in the coming years in the world of DAOs? And again, I'll open it to anyone.
3: I think one of the things um or I mean that I feel that has kind of shown itself over the last sort of cycle um is that, that two things seem to persist in the DAO landscape. I mean, there's a lot in between, and I'm generalizing massively, but the one are examples like ENS and DeFi protocol DAOs um, that in many cases have a built-in revenue model, right? Um, so it's a little bit like the business. There is a business model. There is a value in the world that this DAO keeps accruing revenue. So that's very interesting. Um, and those seem to persist. Obviously, we also have investment DAOs, et cetera. They're more maybe dependent on on uh, general market conditions. So, so I'm not sure. But, um, but yeah, DAOs with a business model that you know has proven itself over time, I think, uh, is interesting. Or like um, incorporating DAOs, or yeah, transitioning towards DAO governance in places that has already built that value uh, instead of starting out as such i think that's maybe a, a trend or something that has um stood out to me um as being important and i hope to see more of it you know in future and the other thing is this idea of like some communities like boys club or i'm not sure that are somehow dao ish but um but they're not so serious about that and they're they're very much these social communities um sort of thing and they also persist so that's also an interesting uh phenomenon where it's very much not about the business at all or you know building a product but it's really just about this community of people um, maybe through token gating um maybe even without a token um but they're very you know close to the space so i think those two sort of strands are kind of opposing um yet they seem interesting they keep popping up they keep persisting people like them they are useful. There is value. Um, I'm curious where those two go in future. Um, And what that then also means, I think as DAOs grow, you know, there will be some more classification or like a taxonomy emerges of types of DAOs. Um, But yeah, those two for me.
0: You know, it reminds me when I first got into DAOs a few years ago, one of the first things I tried to do, and everyone would ask me from outside the DAO space, what types of DAOs are there? right? Like, what are the kinds of DAOs? And it was like, well, you know, there's like these six or these eight types of DAOs, and it's always been a a a, a question that's hard to come up with a really concrete answer to. But I wonder in the world of organizational science, and maybe I'll find it in the paper, if, if there's an answer to that question in terms of organizations, like how many kinds of organizations are there? Well, here's the seven types. Um, but uh, I don't know, I kind of doubt that would be the case. Any of you know, if there is a classification system like
1: that uh sorry for downs or for orgs
0: for traditional organizations yeah because i feel like programs. we could learn from that
1: um i i kind of imagine there's many um one of the things we actually collected when we were building some of these original data sets is uh, like a big set of social ontologies so like there's like you know a very common one in the org theory or the social science portion of this is like Markets, networks, and hierarchies, right? Actually, what am I talking? I feel like Eliza and Tara know like 10 times as much about this stuff as, as I do. But yeah. What were those there. three things, though? Mar- uh, okay. Markets, networks, and hierarchies. Who was the author again? I this. Anyways, kind of like a classic I text in economic, yeah. economic sociology, I think. Hmm.
0: Interesting. So maybe this year we'll see, or maybe there's an answer in the paper to an ontology for for DAOs. Um, Eliza, where do you see DAOs going this year or the next few years?
2: Yeah, something I'm interested in following, and it seems like there's some momentum for in thinking specifically about different voting models within DAOs is kind of this push for moving beyond coin voting. That's kind of know seem to be having a moment in you know the last year or two and you know of course this is context dependent and isn't to say that you know token voting doesn't make sense um for some projects but you know some some critiques i guess of you know voting based on token wealth is that it feels a bit less meritocratic and maybe a little too wealth based um if the goal is is really to you know broaden the democratic participation and so you know there's there's different experiments with proof of personhood voting one person one vote or you know attaching voting power to some form of reputation score which you know could be earned through Um, non-governance community engagement or, you know, through attestations could be automated in some way or not. There's lots of open questions there, but that's something um, I'm curious to follow. And I think there will be uh, further experimentation with that.
0: Yeah, I've been seeing more of that too with our clients at MyDAO is that they'll have maybe a few different tokens with different purposes involved in voting. So maybe there is an NFT Mm -hmm. That's given to a certain group of people for you know a certain reason, and then maybe another NFT that's distributed in a different way, and then a fungible token. And each of those three tokens uh, has a third of the voting power and then collectively you know adds up to a hundred percent. so yeah, it's it's, it's super really interesting. interesting. To see. Yeah. yeah.
1: Josh, how about you? So there's lots of things I could say, but I'll just say one thing that I think. Is interesting that we tend to not notice is that there are there are and there are going to be a lot of new DAOs from Asia. So, for example, the um, Liberal Democratic Party in Japan um, just had a giant DAO hackathon. Effectively, uh, Taiwan has been investing in digital technologies for democracy for a while. They're often some of the most forward folks in this in adopting these kinds of new tech new technologies, similar things happening in South Korea with different overtones. Uh, there's a big kind of like Web3-ish, Suzalo-esque event happening in Chiang Mai, very likely this fall. And I think there's what's going to be interesting for me is to see what kinds of dials emerge. I hope that they'll, they won't be just copies of the ones that we've seen in you know US, Europe, and the West, that they'll have new designs uh, new narratives that, you know, follow on the, I guess, the cultural patterns and the history of organizational development and let's say collectivization in those different cultures, I think it will ultimately make the DAO ecosystem so much more vibrant and so much better.
0: Very interesting. Yes. All right, let's do a quick lightning round because then we have to conclude. Unfortunately, uh, the lightning round is, would any of you like to share a favorite DAO or a DAO that you recommend people who are new to DAOs? Check out to get involved or learn more about how DAOs work.
1: So let's go uh, Josh. Um, so one of my favorite, it's mostly a DAO. It's like a little bit confusing. Uh, kind of on the margins, but it's a DAO run by this company called Henny, though I think that they recently renamed to d Um And what it is, it's effectively, it's a DAO of cancer survivors. Or actually, more specifically, it's a DAO of, composed of mostly people who have gone through breast cancer surgery. And what happens in those surgeries is there's often, you know, there's almost always some sort of pathology ticket, basically cells taken from, you know, a person's body, and then put into storage, into uh, what's called a biobank. And there's all sorts of, you know, complicated issues around the rights and the rights management of those samples, because it's literally a part of a person's body, right? But it's also those samples get used in medical research, the results of which often, you know, have, you know, mm. pretty, Significant implications for people who, you know, whose samples are being tested, uh, and what this DAO is doing uh, what this company is kind of shaping is helping organize these patients so that they can get back control over, or you know, have some sort of control, or say over their literal bodies, which I think is such a cool thing, and it's mm-hmm. you know a really cool use case of you know, blockchains as a way of you know, placing these kinds of rights management issues and these um, you know, coordination issues really front and center. Mm. Very cool. Wow. Yeah, desai kind of part of the desai or D by D it's not a desai thing. It's really just it's run by this wonderful lady named Marielle who's a professor, um, I think most recently at Pittsburgh. Mm. Um, who's what's a D by what's the buy in D um, biology, I think, I think maybe biology.
0: Okay, yeah, and DSI would be decentralized science. All right, yeah. thirty seconds each. Uh, Eliza, favorite DAO or DAO you recommend people check out?
2: Yeah, one that's pretty interesting. Um, I guess you know this collective is still pretty early on, so has plans to eventually decentralize governance, probably in the form of a DAO. Um, but it's called Afropolitan. And it has the ambitious goal of basically being an African network state, ultimately. And this would be comprised of African citizens, diaspora members, and then different allies, as they call it. And, you know, it's a it's a pretty interesting, diverse population already with, you know, many different backgrounds and reasons for wanting to be involved in this blockchain-based collective. A lot of it rooted in dissatisfaction with real-world institutions and feeling like the nation-state experiment failed there. So it's, you know, it's pretty bold vision, but pretty interesting.
0: Cool. Tara?
3: Um, so I think there's so many great DAOs out there. I think, though, for people also who or like, these are also great examples. But for people who are trying to learn and familiarize themselves, it's also fun to dive into the deep end of conflict and messiness and drama. And I would recommend recent nouns DAO and mm. also current Arbitrum DAO, which uh, I'm like, wow, mm. um, this escalated. So So yeah, <laughs> enjoy it also. Like, it's part of it.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I I love that. And uh, I'll recommend uh, for people who are interested in Web3 Social, check out Farcaster and the Purple DAO, which is a nouns-ish DAO, meaning it's based off of the nouns model. Um, Also, just letting everyone know, I'll be at ETH Denver uh, in about a month and a half. Hope to see people there. Will any of you be there by any chance? Nice. Sadly not. Okay, one out of three. Cool. Um, all right. Uh, really quick, where can people find each of you? We already heard uh, it's uh, Dowscience.org, uh, where you can find the interactive version of the paper. Where can people find each of you on the web or on social?
1: Uh, I'm just uh, at Joshua Zetan on Twitter. Easy. Cool. Yeah,
2: at Eliza underscore Oak on Twitter.
3: And I'm at mpg underscore dd on Twitter. And I think we're also all on the Metagov Slack uh, if people are interested in joining and discussing the project.
0: And where can people find Metagov's
1: website? That's just metagov.org. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you all so much for being on the show. This has been so much fun Uh, to the audience. uh, Please consider liking the show or leaving us a review. You can find me on Twitter at Zero X Thriller. MyDAO is at MyDAODS, that's M-I-D-A-O-D-S on Twitter or MyDAO.org. You can find me and MyDAO on Farcaster as well. Um, and a uh, quick, uh, add again for my DAO before we close, we do legal entity solutions for DAOs. We have a partner network of lawyers and tax advisors from all over the world, which we'd love to invite you into or help you get connected with them. Um, thank you guys so much. This has been really fun. Thank you, Adam. Yeah. Thanks Adam. Quick- You got it. Quick reminder, this is never legal or tax advice. We're not lawyers. I'm not a lawyer, at least. And uh, uh, please uh, hire a lawyer if you need legal advice. And to the audience, are you thinking about starting a DAO? Just DAO it.